Welcome to the B2B Category Creators Podcast, hosted by Gil Alouche, founder and CEO of Metadata.io. This podcast is all about sharing the real and sometimes edgy secrets of B2B software creation. On today's episode, we have Deanna McPherson, CMO at Invoca, and Joe Chernov, CMO at Pendo.io. Well, happy Friday. Thank you uh, for joining. I'm very excited to have you both uh, on the podcast. Do you have your alcoholic beverage? I do. All right. I am going to pour it into this plastic cup. So not very classy. <laughs> very but classy. It's what they provide these days. So <laughs> I'll we'll have to make do. What, uh, what do you have to drink there? I have a Paloma. So it's... Um, oh, I love Paloma. Yeah, tequila, soda, grapefruit. Lime. That's great. It's one of my favorite drinks. Paloma is uh, is awesome. Uh, did you make it with like uh, with your favorite, or is it just like whatever you whatever you have at home? Yeah, just whatever I had. But I guess <laughs> you know I haven't. Um, I can't remember the last time I had a cocktail. I kind of stopped drinking during during the kind of uh, lockdown. So you know, if I start slurring my words, you know why? <laughs> I uh, that was good, and that's probably a very healthy thing to do. Many people did exactly the opposite during the uh-huh. lockdown. Uh, Joe, what are you drinking there? Um, I did exactly the opposite um, during the <laughs> lockdown. Uh, I am having this beer. Um, I moved to uh, the Raleigh area this summer. I spent my whole life in Boston, and it just so happens that like probably the best brewery in the country is in um, Massachusetts. And I was longing to find a replacement when I moved here. Um, and there are two, and one of them is this brewery uh, called Burial, and all of their can art is very like um, uh, nightmarish. And so this one is Preternatural Ambience Double IPA, and it's very like menacing can with a uh, looks like a um, octopus trying to break through a wall into some spooky room. So they're all fairly, you know, um, grim and uh, goblinish. Sounds uh, sounds exciting. I mean, drinking that goblin might be delicious. Uh, I'm just drinking this bourbon here, so pretty simple. I'm going to pour myself a little bit. I'm very excited about these uh, episodes today. So we're in the category creative podcast. My name is Gil Alush. I'm the founder and CEO of Metadata.io. Let's uh, get to meet uh, the guests. Uh, Diana, maybe you can start. Introduce yourself uh, for the, the audience, the people who don't know you. Sure. Thanks for having me today. Um, so I'm Deanna McPherson. I'm the CMO at Invoca. I've been with the company about a year, and we're in the conversation intelligence space. Um, previously, I also ran marketing for uh, Hootsuite and Yammer. So three different times, kind of creating categories in very different stages. Yes, very exciting. I remember in our in our chat, you pulled up some really interesting examples, when to create a category, when not to create a category, uh, some of those signals. So I'm excited to hear from all the experience you got through. Uh, Joe, you're next. Maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and to the rest of us. Sure. And, um, I think my old CEO once said, uh, Yammer is my Twitter. Um, <laughs> so um, my name is Joe Chernoff. I uh, lead the marketing team at Pendo. I've been here um, going on uh, two years next month. And um, prior to Pendo, uh, I had uh, run... Um, the content programs at Eloqua going back several years and HubSpot a few years later and some smaller startups peppered in between. I'm glad to be here. 
Awesome. Well, uh, let's kick it off. You know, one of the things that we really concentrate in the category creators is uh, no secret about category creation. The, the impetus behind it is, be, is that many entrepreneurs are uh, keen, passionate, being pushed to uh, create a category for all kinds of reasons. Uh, we're trying to demystify the, that concept. Should you create a category when uh, how do you create it? How do you know it's actually happening? So on and so forth. And so we'd love to get your kind of first first thought. Um, and we can start with you, Joe. What do you think about uh, creating a category? Do you Are you trying to create a category with, with Pendo or with the previous company? Yeah, when, when I joined Pendo, I think we thought we were trying to create a category. But I never thought, like I never really bought it. Um, what we're doing is rolling up adjacent categories into one. And so like, if you squint, maybe that's creating a category, but we were the only one in it. So it's not really a category. Um, you know, we're, we're a company that is like, we are the product stack for a head of product. And so we have product analytics, in-app guidance, feedback collection. These were all like kind of discrete categories. And our uh, mission was to um, be horizontal play, be it all in one play. And we were looking at the all in one play as a category, but I don't think that in and of itself makes for a category. Now, um, now where we're going, and we can talk about this later, I don't want to dominate, but um, where we're going, we will need to create a category for because it's more elementally disruptive than a roll up of known things. Interesting. Okay, so you're talking about, uh, you had a few subcategories maybe that you're thinking about consolidating, but maybe where you're going to the future is more disruptive and actually has merit its own, its own category. Diana, what's your, what's your thoughts from your experience in, in a few different companies that created categories? Yeah, so if I think back to my time at, at Yammer, so um, I joined there in about 2010 and the company had launched, you know, maybe a year or so before that. And they launched it TechCrunch Disrupt and actually won that competition. And they were sort of dubbed by the media were Twitter for business. And it was this new emerging category of like a new way to communicate inside your company. And there were other companies that sort of played on the margins. You know, there was certainly uh, companies that, you know, SharePoint, that's how you should share information on your company intranet. And, you know, of course there was email and social in the enterprise was just starting to emerge. And then the whole business model of freemium in the enterprise, that was new too. So we didn't look like anything else that was out there. So we really, you know, that was the one case where we created a category and we named the category and the market did follow. So Forrester and Gartner actually ended up adopting the terminology that we coined. Uh, so that was, you know, one successful case where it made a lot of sense because it was a completely new, you know, new product. And in other cases, you're, you know, changing the way things are done. And in that case, it may make sense to, you know, play in an existing category and dominate that category. Um, but if you're doing something that the market's never seen before, then at that point, you need to, you need to define it and you need to evangelize the category. Interesting. Can you um, maybe walk us through, you know, briefly, like walk us through maybe visually, how did you get from doing something disruptive that you knew was maybe not covered even to getting the Gartner in the forests of the world to repeat the same words, the same, you know, the same lingo that you wanted to, the narrative that you wanted to, to promote? 
Yeah, so the blessing and the curse of the early days of Yammer is we had a lot of attention, but we had a lot of negative attention. A lot of people just hated us. The analysts hated us. They would actively, you know, blog and share on Twitter, you know, how horrible we were. They called us like the drug dealers of the software industry, and that we were like the smoke that would kind of sneak in under your door and choke you. Um, so there was a lot of negative attention because this model of allowing employees to go choose what software you want to use in your company and then the virality that was built in that encouraged you to invite all of your other coworkers to join you know at the time prior to that IT people chose what software you were going to use inside your company and then they would roll it out so this was really disruptive and we were pissing off our you know would be like customers paying customers so we, we launched with a lot of attention. There was a lot of conversation. People had opinions about us. And uh -huh. so in a way that was good because it brought attention and it actually attracted people to use and, and try the, the software. The other thing that it did is it encouraged all these IT people who were trying to figure out how the heck do I you know, manage the software that's made its way into my organization. They would call the analyst and say, you know, what should I do? And uh, something I learned going through that experience at, at Yammer is if you want an analyst to create a wave or a quadrant on your space, um, one of the big factors is the inbound call volume that they get from their paying customers. And because they were being inundated with calls from IT people saying, what the heck do I do about this you know, Yammer? Um, that got their attention. And then it was sort of a, a long process of, of kind of trying to sell them on our, our point of view and why the old way of doing things, you know, forwarding information by email or going to a company intranet, you know, was the old way of doing things and there was a better way. It's like call your senator to get um, a bill. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like lobbying. I mean, that's really yeah, very no, much. It really is. That's what, like, we actually used to refer it, refer to it as that, like constant campaigning or lobbying, trying to get them to see our point of view. And we said, you know, the biggest risk with any software deployment is that people won't use it. And so we take the risk out of it by getting people to engage first before you actually have to upgrade and pay. And so we would just hammer on that. And, 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 and generally the way the companies that do well in a wave or a quadrant are the ones with the broadest feature set. And our perspective was like, no, like these bloated, like piece of software that is like, that's in the rear view mirror. It's all about, you know, engagement is the new ROI. You want people to use it and you got to slim it down. So we lobbied for, you know, two years to um, get them to change the criteria. Uh, Cause we said, we're not going to put these other features in our product. And so that's they finally came around and did um, create a new category and they called it enterprise social networking, which is what we uh, dubbed yep. the category. It's um, that really reminds me of a analyst experience I had. Um, and I'm, I'm pausing because I'm trying to think if I um, want to withhold the company name, I'm going to withhold the company name for now. It was MQ season and we were in the right category and the, um, it was, we realized it was very difficult to move your dot. Once your dot was placed, you will forever live with that placement. I literally had like tracing paper and I had every year's MQ and I stacked them up and all the dots stayed in the same friggin' spot. Um, they moved like imperceptibly. And so we said, all right, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna have the analyst come in and we're like, going to know the dance and they're going to know the dance. We're going to pay him to come in and air quotes, consult with us for a day. And 
really that means the CEO gets to walk him around the building and like hobnob and, you know, he gets a sense that he's contributing to the future direction of the company. And ultimately, like all we really want to do is kind of grease him a bit, both in terms of paying the consulting fee and uh, ego stroking. And so we had him for a whole day and I don't know, it's $40,000 or something at the time. And it's like one o'clock and he looks at his watch and he's like, guys, you know, uh, my girlfriend lives in town and I'd like to go visit. You, you mind if I bail out of here? Like he knew it was all baloney. He knew that this was all like um, uh, pretense. And so the MQ comes out, we're in the same spot. And I said, look, we gave you every customer. We gave, we answered every question. How do we not move? We're like twice as big as we were last year. And he said, oh, I take all of that data and that contributes like 50% of your placement. And I said, what's the other 50%? And he said, my opinion. And so wherever they moved us, he would just move us back. And the only way to break out of this was to get in a new MQ. And so we went through the organization and briefed a bunch of adjacent analysts. And one of them was like, you know, I'm thinking about this new space and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go into detail because I don't want to illuminate anyone. And the person was like, and I'm thinking of calling it this. It was never a term we used. We're like, that's a brilliant term. You should use that term. In fact, we're going to put all of our marketing might behind that term. We think you should do an MQ on that. Remember, like where your place at the beginning is where you shall forever live. Uh, or that at least at the time it was. And so we, um, we were like the champions of that first MQ because that was our best shot for an upper right placement. And lo and behold, that's what we got. And lo and behold, the company exited on the back of that magic quadrant. Fascinating. So two different approaches completely. One is lobbying, almost pissing them off and getting inbound uh, phone calls to change your mind. And the other one is uh, just championing a different person to, to going after a different term altogether because it doesn't matter how much you dine them and pay them their, uh, their protection fee, uh, they still don't take you off the, you know, to the right place. Our $40,000 is a rounding error. Like Blue Cross Blue Shield is who they care about, right? Like they don't care about some venture-backed SaaS company. Like we don't have enough money to get their attention. Blue Cross Blue Shield or the like, right, has enough money to get their attention. This is a hack. I mean, those two are hacks, right? I mean, this is how I look at those. Uh, getting, because these are, these are tactics that you can uh, deploy. You can say, hey, customers, you love us. You have put 200 reviews on G2. Can you pick up the phone or send an email to this gentleman or if you have Forrester, the debt lady, and uh, say what you think? Or you go to the biggest customer you have and tell them, what do you think is a good, is a good name for this category? Uh, yeah, I heard a new term recently, um, community-led growth. And now when I think about that, I'm like, you know, that's kind of like that played a big role with both Yammer and, and Hootsuite and getting really close to your customers and having really active customer community where they're also helping each other figure out if you're if you're truly doing something new they're helping each other find their way and then you can stay really close to them and then um you know really make them the poster children for something that's new and innovative and you know with with yammer 
the way we kind of turn things around with IT is, is we decide, okay, we need to like get to them early and often, and we need to make them see that this is, you know, kind of the way of the future. And we found a few CIOs who, you know, saw this as an opportunity to really raise their own personal profile and attaching themselves to something new and innovative. And, you know, we had a few customers, there was one, not a CIO, but a, a customer from Deloitte Digital, he literally within one year did over a hundred speaking engagements talking about Yammer. Wow. Uh, most of them were on his own, you know, he was a high profile person, but it was something new and innovative and it was an opportunity to elevate himself. And we found a couple of uh, CIOs as well. And we just got them out there and then they became active in the community and people saw their profiles really raising and other people were like, I wanna do that too. And then it, their customers were just sort of almost knocking your door down to want to speak at your events and, you know, participate in your, you know, marketing activities. And then, you know, also talking to the press and analysts. So I, I highly and, recommend building that customer community from the get-go. At Eloqua, we like perp-walked Megan Eisenberg, one of very prominent CMO now, to every single event. Like, Megan Eisenberg had like eloquent handlers with her at all times. Um, and we picked a good one, right? Like she's maybe the best marketer in tech, one of the top five in B2B. And, you know, we were in the star making business a bit. Interesting. Uh, how do you, how do you create, um, how do you create that community? How do you get that gentleman from, from Deloitte or Megan Eisenberg to, to actually act on your behalf to do hundred hundreds speaking engagements a year, raising, talking about your brand, that's unbelievable. How do you get to, to that, uh, that situation as a startup? So in the case of Yammer, we created a, an online community and we actually used our own product mm -hmm. to do that. And there was a lot of, I mean, it was very actively community managed. So we had two, and I think at the end, maybe even three full-time community managers, active spawning conversation. We had our product people, we had our executives. Um, so that was really orchestrated in that community and then through physical events as well. Mm. Um, at Hootsuite, that was another big part of the strategy. Um, the customers were social media managers. So they wanted, by nature, they were sharers. They wanted to get out there and talk. And if you could um, empower them, give them content, you know, they were looking to grow their follower account in, in social. So we would just send them really interesting content. And we actually used, um, we used Influitive. And I think you have an association with Mark Oregon. So that was his company. We were one of their earliest customers. And we used Influitive to kind of manage our, our program there. And at Invoca, we have, and it's um, more enterprise centric. So 300 customers, you know, we don't have millions of end users. It's a uh, more of an enterprise product. So we have uh, a customer advocacy program and we just, you know, really actively engage with them. There's uh, ex executives who kind of pair up with customers and we have a team internally managing customer advocacy. Very cool. I, I, I operate off the premise that everyone is terrified. Um, imposter syndrome is rampant in tech. People get titles prematurely um, it's filled with a lot of youth and it's changing nonstop. And the sense of feeling left behind is real and acute. And the best way to create a community is to understand that, not to exploit that, but just to understand that everybody in the room is terrified, including the person in front of the room, because man, it's hard to keep up. And so if you can get customers and prospects together, to talk about something meaningful and that something is um, 
like at the forefront of change, and you can address their unspoken concerns, the concerns that they're like feel but are afraid to give voice to, but you can give voice to it on their behalf and address it on their behalf and address it from fellow practitioners, not like you just pick up the tab as the brand. Your job is to pick up the tab and to bring together the people on the front lines and then let them do the work for you. Like that's how a community is built. It's built on the back of like um, people that know they need to keep up with change. And then the frontline folks that are actually implementing that change. And then as a brand recede behind the curtain and just pick up the tab at the end. Tell, tell me about uh, a moment that was in the category creation path, in, in, the, in the work of, of creating or defining a category that you felt was a failure or some critical, critical moment not of success in that path. Um, I was at a company and we were creating a category. And in this case, like, we actually were creating a category. Like I think a lot of category creation is basically redefinition of something that already exists, not really a category, it's a new brand. Uh, but in this case, like it was a real thing. As it turned out, it wasn't a category that was big enough to justify being a category. Like it was a category, it just wasn't um, enviable in the size, right? But nevertheless, the category was, interesting enough that it got the attention of uh, I don't know, one of the five best, one of the three best known brands in all attack. And that brand moved to acquire us. And they moved to acquire us on the back of a Forrester wave. And it was a Forrester wave on that category. And it was going to be change your life outcome for me. And a lot of the work was on the back of marketing, right? Because it was, it was on, it was really on this, uh, on the sales report. And so we're going through the process and you can see it playing out that all the diligence and God, these interviews. And it was like, you know, it's like getting into Stanford. It was really a, this ordeal. And um, you knew it was at some point the worm was turning and it was going sideways and you could just feel like this isn't going well. Uh, we went from like having dinner together to being at odds and opposite sides of the tables. It was, it was we weren't going to get it. And finally, they, they sort of showed their hand and they were like, we love this category, love the topic. You guys are like top player. I'm like, I don't know, we've done weeks of diligence and it's not adding up for me. I'm not getting it. How did this come about? And I was just way too honest. And I said, oh, my entire marketing program has been built around working that analyst to write this report. And I should have never said that. It was like the stupidest thing I possibly could have said. Like I basically leaned into his concern and, um, and validated it. And I could see on his face, dead man walking like this, this thing is over. And the acquisition didn't happen. Oh. Subsequently oh, exited yeah. successfully. Well, first of all, cheers to, cheers to that story. It was a badass story. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's great. You know, that you learn from those moments the most, like, you probably just helped my future self in some kind of similar situation. I'm going to definitely remember that story. Uh, so thank you. That was, that was a great story. Uh, <laughs> Diana. You know, back to my time at Yammer, we had, you know, we, um, 
were acquired by Microsoft in our fourth year for 1.2 billion. So that, you know, at the time seemed like a phenomenal exit. You know, at the time Salesforce had been entering the category they launched with a Super Bowl ad. And I think, you know, it sort of maybe spooked us a little bit into, you know, into exiting the category too soon. And now you look and see Slack's come in and, and dominated that category and had a you know $27 billion exit. So I think um, getting nervous about competition. Uh, I would say that in a emerging category, competition is actually good. It's, you know, it's kind of growing the category. And, uh, you know, I wish we would have held on. Yeah, isn't that a thing though? Like this is one of the weaknesses of entrepreneurs is they know cerebrally category creation good, but then emotionally it's like, wait, why is my competitor using our terms? And as a marketer, you got to be like, no, 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 that's a good thing. But they're like, no, but this is ours. And it's like, yes, but the only way for it to be a category is for somebody else to take that term and to beat us over the head with it. We have to, that's like an occupational hazard of creating a category. And that's sort of the CMO's job in some ways of category creation is reassuring yeah. the founder that that's a good thing and a necessary thing. Yeah, definitely. Exiting that category just because of the nature of the M&A was, was what you're almost regretting on here. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not complaining. It was very <laughs> successful. It was a very successful outcome. So I'm, I'm not complaining. And But, you know, in hindsight, you're like, oh, it, could, it was, you know, it was bound to be huge. So um, it would have been fun to stay in and, you know, kind of fight it out. Yes. Because yeah, of there's... the innovator's dilemma, you might never have become Slack, though, right? Yeah. Interesting. Sometimes those acquisitions, those acquisitions happen for a moment, uh, for a reason. The, the one billion was not for, not for nothing. They probably saw the same thing. It's interesting what you said about emerging categories and how the founders are paranoid about uh, competitors. I can confirm on my end uh, or deny, but uh, there is definitely the, when you see a competitor, you know, that is gaining momentum, especially in a category that you play, it is a little uh, nerve wracking, but it is also a huge deal because it validates the fact that you're even doing something meaningful versus just doing something on the sidelines. It's interesting how you say uh, reassure, the, reassure the CEO. I guess if you have a path to, to tell your either founder or the CEO that there, you know, there's, there's a plan to get, to get ahead, uh, I think it's all good. I mean, the end of the day, that's exactly what you want to, to happen. But easier said than done. Do you think you can create a category in today's world without the analyst consent? I do. I mean, if customers are willing to pay you for it, sure. I don't think that analysts are really a top of funnel thing. Like, you know, okay, here's a wave. Now everyone's going to go out and buy the product. I mean, I think it, you first you need to get customer adoption first. And if there's you know, if there's movement in, in the market, then the analysts will, will follow. So I think, you know, the first thing you want to do is focus on getting traction. That's number one. And that should always be your primary focus is, you know, serve your customers well, give them value and everything else will fall in line. Yeah, I think the importance of analysts is proportionate to how far up market you sell. Um, Clavio is one of the hottest companies in tech and they sell to very small direct-to-consumer brands. You think a very small direct-to-consumer brand is subscribing to Gartner? No. So they don't need an analyst because the guy that, you know, makes cool wallets or the woman who makes beautiful iPhone cases, they're not reading Waves and MQs. So it doesn't really matter there, right? Like HubSpot eschewed analysts for the longest time. They probably don't anymore, but when I was there, they did. 
Meaning they uh, ignored them or didn't work with them? They um, resented them and didn't oh. work with them and made it public. And they said analysts can be bought and that's why we're backing G2 Crowd. The dirty little secret was the analysts didn't think highly of HubSpot because its product wasn't as robust as everything else. And so HubSpot decided to turn the tables. But like the HubSpot category, you knew inbound was a thing. I knew inbound was a thing, not because of a analyst report, but because I was at a pool one day and I see this couple laying in their chaise lounges. And one of them is reading Michael Lewis, The Big Short. And the other is reading Halligan and Darmesh's Inbound. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's a thing, right? Like this is happening. And so sometimes it's just like pointillistic. You see these little vignettes and you're like, something's happening here. And you don't necessarily need the MQ. The big value of the MQ is enterprise and M&A. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of CMOs. Uh, you were talking about building an audience. I think earlier on, uh, Diana, you were talking about building that community. Dave Gearhart from Drift, now he's at a, at a different company, was talking about an audience, building an audience, building a community. Uh, Anthony Canada, as well as Nick Meta from Gainsight, were was here talking about building a community and making the you know, finding the, the persona, right? For them, it was a customer success manager that didn't get much love, making them, uh, uh, you know, first-class citizen in the organization, putting a, a content behind it, best practices, so on and so forth. I, I know you, you, you mentioned, Diana, that that's one of, the, one of the things you did at Yammer, I think, and Hootsuite as well, using the, the platform. Uh, did you find any, any ways, and you used Influitive, so, you know, you had a piece of software um, to help you with that. Did you find any tactics or best practices to set up uh, to set up a community like that to be almost self self-sufficient like growing by itself or in organic or how do you how do you tackle that that project at what stage do you do you, you know allocate yourself to it yeah well when you have millions of, of users and you're inviting a large community you cannot expect it to be self-managing and you also have to expect the first six months of creating this online community to be incredibly painful. And, and we really you know, would have to set expectations with the executives and especially the product people because oftentimes they'll first come into a community and uh, you know, sometimes the customers will think, well, okay, this is my opportunity. I'm gonna really try to influence you know, my thoughts on the product or complain about things or think of it as a support community. And even though you would try to you know, manage that, um, it was going to happen for a while. And um, you just had to, you know, expect that. And then you would start to, you know, turn it into a more productive conversation where it's not about like support questions, but this is a community helping each other. So it takes active management. And I think you need a really skilled person to manage it. If you just put it out there, um, either it's going to fall flat and people aren't going to engage, or, you know, they could come and sort of beat you up to lobby for the features that they want. Okay, so very intentional. Uh, at what stage did you, you said you had millions of, of users, so that was fairly late in the... In the no, because we were, it was a free, they were both freemium products, so we had millions of users, you know, before we had a whole lot of revenue. Um, so uh, that was the case there. Gotcha. Yeah. Joe, I, you, you mentioned your, you know, Pendo to be the, I think you call it product, or the stack for product, for VP of product or for the product team. Did you, did, do you work on a community? Do you work on an audience, uh, like your own, your own movement? We do in two ways. One is we have a, um, we have a user conference 
that has the greatest name of any user conference of any company. And I can say that because I didn't name it and it was named before I arrived. And the minute I heard it before I was here, I was like, my God, that's a genius name. And um, so Todd Olson, our CEO named it uh, Pendemonium. And Pendemonium is our, is our user conference. Now this year, Pendemonium is a little different, right? Because it's virtual. So this year it was a little bit less about how to become a better Pendo user and a little bit more of about a brand event. But we build that community around helping people become better product professionals. It's never going to be as wide as um, so a company with a million users, right? It's never going to be that broad. Like everybody in a company needs to communicate, but not everybody in a company needs to build the product. And so this is more narrow and deep. Then we have a second community called Product Craft. And my predecessor, Guy Jake Sarfman, deserves all the credit for Product Craft. That was not my idea. That was Jake. And he did an unbelievable job. And Product Craft is less about being like a great Pendo user. And it's more about like the passion for great products. And it skews toward the people behind those great products. So we have like more of a wide and shallow and more of a narrow and deep. And those are our two communities. Interesting. Uh, they work in parallel? No, no conflict? Like you just run those two programs essentially in parallel? Uh, yeah, they, I mean, there's, there's some overlap, but not conflict. And, you know, it's funny. We just were talking about this the other day. Um, I think three of the speakers at our first pandemonium now work here. Uh, pretty good recruiting, pretty good recruiting <laughs> strategy, expensive recruiting strategy, but, you know, pretty good recruiting nevertheless. What today with, with a lot of data, a lot of technology, a lot of access to creative and content and, uh, you know, very wealthy marketing mix, especially for both of you, your, your experience, you have, you know, you have teams and, uh, and, and technology in allocation. What do you think is the most important uh, trait that a CMO in a B2B company should bring to the table today? I've been actually thinking about this very question. I've been thinking about the difference between a VP of marketing and a CMO. And um, the difference is time horizon. If as a CMO, you're living quarter to quarter, you're thinking about the next 90 days, you are an underpaid head of sales. Your job in as CMO is to not be thinking about how you're going to make the next quarter or Q plus one or Q plus two. It's how are you going to go from, if you're at 50 million, how are you going to go from 200 to 800? If you're at a hundred million, how are you going to get to a billion? That's the CMO's job. And to find people that can run the day-to-day, -day, that can worry about Q plus one, Q plus two, Q plus three. So you don't have to. And then you spend your time worrying about how you're going to double a couple of years out. I think that's the difference. And I think the key to becoming a successful CMO is to put in place the, uh, the team that can give sales what sales needs so that you can focus on clearing a path for the bigger picture down the line. Diana, do you agree with that? I do. I think that's a, um, a great perspective. Um, I think marketing of all the departments in, you know, in a company, you really almost have like the broadest range of 
of skill sets. So you have really quantitative people, you have technical people, you have the creatives, you have the storytellers and everything in between. And you know, other departments, you know, you, you have front-end engineers or back-end engineers, but they're all engineers, you know, same with HR people. So the, the marketer kind of has the toughest job in the company. You've got this, you know, broad set of um, responsibilities. But I think that I often get asked, you know, oh, should our CMO be demand gen oriented or should they be a product marketer or should they, you know, have what background? And I think that's the wrong question to ask. I think a CMO really needs to operate almost at a general manager level. You need to have people who are strong at all the functions, but you really need to kind of be kind of at the core of so many different things that the company is doing. And so I like Joe's perspective around, you know, operating on a different time horizon. You really need to have strong deputies at, at each of the different functions. And you need to think about, you know, that overall customer experience, developing the market, you know, understanding what's happening, you know, in the broader market so that you can help set the strategy. I called, that's such a perfect response, Deanna. I called when I took over this role um, and demand gen wasn't exactly where it needed to be. And I was kind of sweating that, like you almost have to earn the right for the longer time horizon. Um, and uh, I called Kit Bonder at HubSpot, HubSpot CMO. And I worked really closely with Kip when I was there. Good friends with Kip, Kip's a really uh, special guy. And I'm like, dude, you gotta help me out. Like, how do you, like, a gazillion dollar company now, man. Like, how do you focus downstream when there are all these, uh, or upstream when there are all these downstream, like intense needs? Like, how do you balance them? And he said, I don't. I hire people to worry about the down, downstream issues so I can focus upstream. It was like this seminal conversation that left such an impact on my outlook of the job. Whereas like, there's no way you could do both. So you have to declare a major and then you have to hire people to do the other thing and get out of their way. Yeah, absolutely. Live in the present or fix the present so that you can live in the future. That's uh, sometimes the balance that, that we have to keep. That's, that's very true. Outside of category creation, choose a moment that, you know, we, we call it quite, quite interesting stories that way. So I have to ask this question because it's always full of magic. And uh, Diana, your hashtag fail moment was not... Uh, to Failey, so I'm gonna double down here on the, on the embarrassing story. Tell me an embarrassing story from your, let's say 10, 15 last years uh, as a professional working in companies that created categories that did, that did a lot of big deals, uh, a moment of great embarrassment. Oh gosh, I have to think about that. Oh, I could tell you, I mean, huge, this, this isn't in my last 10 to 15 years, this was very early in my career and I will never forget it. And it was a huge lesson. This is a very tactical mistake, but early in my career, I started in the PR world and um, I was you know, pretty junior in my career. And I came up with this idea for this press, You know, back then we did press conferences. It was IBM was, there was speculation they were gonna make a big acquisition. My client was actually Gartner. Gartner was my client. And I said, we're gonna call a press conference and we're gonna have commentary on it and we'll, we'll be all over the news. Um, this was like pre-internet. And we put out the news alert for it. We got press from all over the world, hundreds of press signed up for this. I'm sitting in 
Renee Edelman's office. And she's telling me what a great job I did. This was my, all my idea. I set it up. And then the phone starts ringing off the hook. I, I had the wrong phone number, dial-in phone number for this oh. press conference. So I had hundreds of reporters calling in and it was like the wrong number. Uh. And this was like before email, like this is when you called and faxed people. So that was like, you know, a great lesson and attention to detail. It's like the nitty gritty little details will get you in the end. So um, I will never forget that. Oh man, that was tough. Did you, uh, since there was no email, no reply to all, sorry, just use this other Zoom link. We got like, what'd you do? Of, you know, dozens of people calling up all these reporters and giving them the new, the new phone number. Uh, Joe Chernoff, what's your story? Well, I get a lot of them. Um, when I was at Eloqua, we produced, it was like sort of in the era of a lot of like the rise of visual content and infographics. And we, um, we created this infographic that was inspired by, it was a take on Marshall McLuhan's um, The Medium is the Message. And it was about the rise of influencers. And we released it at South by Southwest. And we, it was like months of research had gone into this thing. And I moderated a panel and it had like, a who's who of influential figures at the time. And um, I'm dyslexic. And I, and so it should have been, it was about the rise of influencers. So we were turning uh, into the message into the messenger. And that was the twist on the Marshall McLuhan. So it should have been the medium is the messenger. But being dyslexic, I transposed the whole thing. And it was the messenger is the medium. And it just garbled the whole, like it inverted the meaning and everything. And months of work and nobody like compared the title of the book to what the title of the thing was. And so I'm moderating this panel. And because I've got all these muckety mucks on it, like I'm actually nervous and I usually don't get nervous, but I'm actually nervous. And so like my voice is breaking, it's not going great. And then the first question somebody asks is they stand up in the audience and they're like, did you invert the Marshall McLuhan book? And the very first question, I'm like, oh my God, look, I'm dyslexic. I got a thing. I, I flip-flop things all the time. It was like, it was brutal. Oh God. That's probably it. <laughs> brutal stories. I like that. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. Cheers. Uh, any last final words for our for our audience? As a reminder, you know, most of our audience are entrepreneurs, CEOs, CMOs, and VPs of marketing that are still trying to understand where their job ends and where the CMO job starts. But uh, all of them are looking to learn how to create a category or think distinct, you know, distinguishly whether they should or not. Any, any final words for, for them? I mean, I think the biggest lesson is you got to be bold. I mean, you just really have to, to be bold when you're creating a category. You have to have a strong point of view and you've got to get people to agree with you. And, you know, you kind of don't do that by anything other than, you know, having a very bold perspective and getting people excited about the way you see things developing. Love that. That's, that's very true. It's sometimes easier said than done. Uh, I'd say that people are going to push you to create a category because that's become a reflexive position, but it's not binary. It's not create a category or be run of the mill, right? There, that's a false choice. You can expand a category, you could combine categories, like there's a lot in between. And so I would say be intellectually honest and ask yourself, am I replacing uh, somebody else that's uh, a budgetary line item 
Or is there no line item for what I sell? And I've got to create one. If there's no line item for what you sell, category creation might be the way to go. If you're going to replace an incumbent or you're going to replace a way that they're currently doing something, then maybe category expansion is what you want to do. A category redefinite, right? Like, but it's probably not creation. And so like your company doesn't suck if you're not creating a category. You could do plenty well in redefining one. So I would start with that, that, that uh, binary. Are you replacing a budgetary line item or are you creating a budgetary line item? And that should inform some decisions. It does. It's super insightful. I think that's a, that's a simple question and not an easy one to tackle because there's a lot of, uh, you get skewed to, to sometimes do, do it anyway. But uh, I, that's very interesting. Thank you for that. And, uh, and thank you for participating. I really enjoyed this, uh, this episode. You have a wealth of knowledge, both of you. I wrote down a lot of content. Some of it I'm going to do myself and the, the rest I'm going to share with the No, I'm going to share all of it with the audience. Thank you for a really good, really good insight and a fun conversation. Uh, have you. a wonderful rest of the Friday and a great weekend. Deanna, it was a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers. Thank you, Deanna. Thank you, Joe. Bye-bye, folks. Thanks again for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed today's discussion and will tune in again. Find all of the B2B Category Creators episodes at metadata.io. And if you have any feedback, topics, or would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out.